0: Today at the SDGI Directors and Dialogue, director Michael Apted discusses his work with fellow director Shimmy Marcus. One of the great things I admire, um, Michael, is that you wear so many different hats. Uh, To have had the career you've had in drama alone would be extraordinary. But that. you worked also in documentary. Um, in fact, documentary, I would say, casts a long shadow over a lot of your drama work as well. You worked uh, in the subjects of sport, uh, films about the 2006 FIFA World Cup, uh, music, Brynn on the Night, Academy Warroom film with Sting, uh, The Rolling Stones. And not only that, but as many of us will be aware, uh, here today celebrating the 10th anniversary of Guild is the vast amount of work you've done for the Directors Guild in America as well which I'd say would give you a more broader perspective on some of the things we're going to discuss uh, today. I want to kick off um, by starting with, just as a nod also to some of the documentary filmmakers here today, is to talk a little bit about documentary at the start, because that's basically where you, where you started, in, mm-hmm. in Granada. Yeah. Um, probably one of the things you'd be probably best known for is the 7-Up series, which I think next year, will is maybe next year or the year after, will be 56-Up. Correct can you tell us to start a little bit about uh, just introduce seven um, up
1: the original concept of it and and how it 's evolved over the years? Uh, it, it evolved by mistake uh, it was no one ever had a brilliant idea of let 's track people's lives. The idea, original idea was 1964 in the United Kingdom. It looked like there was some cultural, social revolution going on, lots of changes with music and fashion and theater, and movies and whatever, and basically was the whole texture of English society changing, Were mm-hmm. the big class barriers that had sort of been up there for centuries were they sort of breaking down whether it was Look Back in Anger, John Osborne's play, or The Beatles, or whatever, suddenly people from the working class were having a loud voice, and did this signify a real change in this kind of social infrastructure? And so it was a simple idea, find uh, 14, 15, year old kids from different parts of the social landscape and ask them questions. Ask them questions about themselves, about uh, what they wanted to do, about their friends, about race, about sex, about money, and just see what comes out. Rather than going the kind of conventional route of getting a load of economists or journalists or psychologists or politicians to talk about society, let's hope that out of the mouths of babes comes some sort of truth. And it did and 7-Up was very successful it was very funny and very resonant it made this point that whatever we might think the old class system was alive and well it was successful and that was that and then uh, about five years later the man who was running Granada came up to me and said why don't we go back and just see what's happening to them. I mean, looking now, is why we were so stupid not to think of that immediately. But anyway, so we did go back, and I made 7 plus 7, which was excruciating. Um, These bright little seven-year-olds have become spotty teenagers who (laughs) spoke, uh, gave monosyllabic answers. But, you know, you could see when you saw the film put together that here was, this was a big idea. And from then on, it was really just a question of a no-brainer of keeping the whole thing going, um, which, you know, uh, the only reason it's kept going, the only reason why in the whole history of audiovisual I may win the race for who does it the longest is because Granada Television survived, i.e. they were always there every seven years to cough up the money. They own the copyright. I've tried similar things in the United States and it's been a nightmare because uh, companies have disappeared or just pulled out uh, because of the whole different way business is run now in the entertainment industry. And then if you change companies, then you get into copyright issues or who owns what. But really, I mean, apart from the fact that I hung in with it, although I went to America to live in America after... You know, 21 up, uh, I've always found a space to do it because it's, for me, you know, my signature piece. But basically, Granada's always been there and are there next year to do 56 up.
0: Well, if Granada and you have been the consistent thing throughout it, um, one of the
1: most extraordinary observations of the series is how the lives of the participants have changed over the years and the yeah. perspective that gives us... Yeah, and of course it changed. It started out as a kind of crass <laughs> political statement, which was in a sense attempted to be self-fulfilling. I.e., you know, if you go to the extremes of society, which we did, to choose the children, then in a certain you're going to prove that the social system, social class system, still exists. If you went into the middle ground, which we didn't, because we were trying to be flashy about it, and we really did want to prove a point. Uh, that forget the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The, you know the old order doesn't change, um, but we overcame that. I mean, the, 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 the sort of crass political lines of the original, however entertaining, became modified over the generations as it became obviously much more driven by the people's personalities and the people's life stories. And so, I mean, the, the you know the moment, the kind of. Inspirational flash, this serendipitous moment, whatever you want to call it, it was when I first took the film to America. Um, I was living in America at the time, 28 had been made and people said what is all this why why, why don't you bring it out I said well know I don't want to show it in America because they won't understand it because it's about the English class system you've got to know what a comprehensive school is a public school, a private school it will be embarrassing because it means a lot to me I don't want all you looking blankly at it but anyway they persuaded me to show it and they did get it and I thought oh blimey maybe this is sort of bigger than i thought it was maybe this is much more universal than i thought it was that it was dealing with the really great issues of life which are about growing up and getting a job and getting married and having kids and all that sort of stuff and so that for me was was as i said my road to road to damascus in a sense and from then on i became more confident in what i was doing you know that this wasn't a piece necessarily about england but it was a piece about you know
0: Growing up, and people with universal themes that everyone can yeah. identify with yeah. as well, and through his longevity as well, they've almost become characters in a sense. Yeah. Obviously, with the longest cliffhangers, seven-year cliffhanger yeah. between each episode. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll show a, cl- a short clip, uh, just so people who haven't seen it can get a sense of what we're talking about. The clip we're going to show is actually—it's um, a trailer for Forty Nine Up. Okay. Um, and in that is a, just a couple of clips of some of the people that were uh, the participants in the documentary. I think it's about three minutes long. Um, <laughs> one of the, <clears throat> one of the, the key elements is for, to make something like this a success is obviously your relationship with the participants um, and that element of trust which is obviously a key thing for any documentary filmmaker, I think, approaching their subject, is um, how you get them to to share their lives with you so openly, and and particularly in this case, for so long as well. And I know it was uncomfortable. Some have refused
1: to come back. uh, Two of them. One dropped out at 21 and one dropped out at 28. And I, I may lose the girl this time.
0: Okay, and am I right
1: in thinking one became a producer who tried to sue you? One of the <laughs> one of the people who dropped out became a documentary filmmaker, okay. which infuriated the shit out of me. That he wouldn't, he would live by the sword, wouldn't die yeah. by the sword. Although he was under a lot of peer pressure to be in it, he wouldn't. And also, as you say, he tried to have himself removed from uh, from the from the shows because he hadn't given permission for you know, to be in it. But he, you know, he. Didn't do very well with that. What advice
0: then can you give us as directors working in documentary about gaining that trust and how you approach subjects?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's it's it depends. It's horses for courses. If this in this longitudinal kind of stuff, you have to be incredibly careful because you cannot lie to them. I mean, you can lie. You know, into your teeth when you're doing a single documentary you're saying I won't use this, I won't do that oh my goodness, how could you even think I'd do something like that and then you know, because, not that we're bad people but that we want to make a film that we think has as much resonance and as significant or whatever we're trying to do with the film so with this sort of thing you're a prisoner because if you mess them about, if you lie to them then you've had it so they have tremendous power um, not all of them quite understand that um, you know, they, and they really can have anything they want and do anything they want some of them insist on seeing a rough cut of it and insist on giving me notes, like I'm working for Fox or something like that. Um, Others are fine and just let it all hang out. Um, But also some say, I don't want to answer questions like that. Don't ask me this. Don't ask me that. And there's not much you can do. I mean, if you want them to come back, which you do, I mean, the people that dropped out, I would say to them, just come back and do say the alphabet just so we can see your face and hear your voice and put you into the great scheme of things. But... uh, so when you do this, you know, this they have a, a tremendous amount of power. So that somewhat dictates the element of trust. Uh, so because you have to be honorable with them and honest with them, you, know, you don't have a choice. In this. So trust builds up over the years. And I, I found what's interesting to me is how much, although I suppose it's obvious, how closer we get as the c- series goes on, because the age difference collapses. You know, I'm 14 years older than them and you know, when they were 14 and I was 28 that's like a, an ocean of yeah. time and experience but when you get to in their 30s and 40s you know, and I'm 14 years older um, we speak the same language and we have a shared life and I find the films much more difficult to do because of that, because they're so emotional you know, we have so much shared life together although I don't see them much in the intervening times, but we we have a lot of baggage. And, uh, you know, that trust thing becomes, you know, it's, it's a given, really, but I, I think it's... When I finished 49, I thought, I can't do this again. It's taking too much out of me, but I, I got over it. And here we go again, but it, it's interesting how, you know, it's, it is a bit like family. It is a bit like blood. It's more than friendship, you know, because... And we have that kind of relationship. Some, I don't think, like me very much, and we don't see each other very much. Others, you know, we're in love with each other and all this. So it's a very odd relationship, and, and, you know, it's totally different from the regular business of of, um, a documentary. It takes me a long time to get them to show up because they like to torture me, because they feel correctly that they were bulldozed into it by parents and schools and by us, and I become the kind of, uh, you know, as it were, the target for all that. So they like to hang around and say, oh, we don't don't do it this time, and all that goes on, and eventually, you know, I prostrate myself, and they agree to do it, and all that sort of stuff, and, um, but that's the toughest part of it, getting them to do it, um, but, uh, and as I said, they do set out rules. Uh, but if you're doing a, another sort of documentary, then it's really, you know, once, unless you're lying to them all the time, which I have been known to do, I mean, doing documentaries for what I thought was very good reasons. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a moment, and then that's the end of it. I was to believe everyone has a story to tell, be it yeah. documentary or drama. Yeah. I thought you were Oh,
0: that. oh no. No, no, no. We have to follow uh, up by saying. Um, You've also said that, you know, your documentary experience certainly informs how you approach drama. Yeah. Can you give us an example of that, I mean, yeah, apart I mean, from the obvious research? Yeah,
1: easily. I mean, I, I think I have a documentarian at heart, so everything I do, you know, has a documentary, I like to think, very similitude to it. So, for example, when I did the Bond film, The World Is Not Enough, <coughs> it's just set in the Caspian, and it's about... Taking oil and gas out of you know out of the Caspian Sea, so I said to them all, "Let's go down and have a look at it." They said, "What? Um, you know, this is Bond." I said, "No, no, no, it doesn't matter. Let's do it. Let's go and have a look at it." So we they, they all schlepped down to Azerbaijan to Baku. <laughs> You know we looked around and of course it was fantastic and we got out of it we got images and ideas for locations and sets that were breathtaking. I mean the Russians for example had so much steel in the 1960s they didn't know what to do with it so they built this city on the Caspian. So, so to, to get gas and oil out of the Caspian they actually built a city in the middle of the ocean. It was bizarre. But that gave you incredible images, and we shot a little bit of it, but, you know, we used it as themes for design. So, you know, then I was able to say, well, there you are. You know, if if I hadn't said to go down there, we would never have known about that. But I think when I approach everything, um, it, it is with... I've done a lot of biographical films or a lot of films, you know, with people still alive, and I find that... Comforting, uh, you know, to, in a sense, to to put a patina of truth about the whole thing, even if, even if the story is gobbledygook or whatever. And I, I remember doing Gorky Park and feeling totally distraught because they wouldn't let us film in the Soviet Union. I mean, this was pre-Gorbachev, and when we asked, they said they didn't know anything about the book, which of course was. A world bestseller, and they said, anyway, there's no such thing as crime in Russia. So we knew we were onto a hiding to nothing. But I just felt you know, disconnected from the subject matter. We had to shoot it in Finland and Sweden and wherever. But you know, just simple things about what a Russian kitchen looks like and all that. I was sort of cut off from that. So I think research and that documentary soul, though. Don't do many documentaries these days. I think it's the abiding, you know, the abiding muscle, my abiding filmmaking muscle. I'd like
0: to move on to the next clip because I think it gives us another good example of how uh, it's the film um, Amazing Grace and how you managed to get a lot of historical content into this very kind of flirtatious scene between the two characters. Uh,
1: do you want to just set this scene up first? Um. Yes, it's interesting because this film took a tremendous amount of time to get going. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people had a go at it and couldn't figure it out. A lot of directors were on it, writers were on it. And it became desperate that they made the film because they wanted to hit, I think it was the 200th anniversary of the passing of the Anti-Slave Trade Act. And I'd always had an idea about this film, was not to do it in a linear way. Here's a life. And the, and the crucial thing about this life was how William Wilberforce spent decades trying to get this bill through. And you know, he kept failing and failing and failing. And, and everybody, the scripts I read, and there were a lot in existence, had all done it in a linear manner. And I said, this is ridiculous. Because uh, one of the other interesting things about him is he didn't marry till quite late in life, till he was in his late thirties. and they had six children in four years or something, amazing. And she was, so I said, what I want to do is take the, the, the courtship and the marriage as the as the framework That's of the torture. whole piece, and have him tell her tell her his life, um, and use that as it were as the page turner in, in the film. This scene is they've just met and he's. Taking her for they've been set up together, and he's taking her for a walk around the garden. And this is really the beginning of the of the dramatic device that we use to tell the story. On the surface,
0: it seems like a, a, quite a simple scene, but on closer examination, there's actually a, a hell of a lot going on in that scene. Mm. Um, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the blocking of it Mm -hmm. Um, and how you approach that. Um, Is blocking something that comes to you when you read the script or is it something that
1: comes through rehearsal or on the set or working with the actors? Well, all of the above. I mean, sometimes you have a scene and you see it in your mind or if it's a location, you find a location and that presents the blocking to you. I always... Like to rehearse if the actors like to rehearse and most of them do, and so we rehearse, and things happen on the day when you're there and whatever. So it's it's a mixture of all things, but I mean, I always try and keep my mind open. But this scene was was particularly uh, troubling and, and interesting because it was written as though it was one huge tracking shot, and uh, you know I rehearsed it a bit like that, and then I began to think. You know, I don't have enough control over this uh, by, by doing it. And it's something where the pace and um, you know, so the rhythm of the thing is going to be very, very tricky and very delicate. And Although the actors didn't like the idea, because they liked the idea of having to do this three-page scene in one long shot, it gave me a chance to have different goes. If I broke it down in pieces, which I did... Um, it would give me a chance to have a number of different goes at each piece because I was aware that the film had to build up into that big climax and you know, I had to travel emotionally quite a long way to get to the moment where he was screaming at her which he found incredibly difficult because I remember it was an audition piece we did and everybody's instinct all the way through was to do it in a very charming way because he's trying to charm her yeah you. he's trying to tra- charm her because he likes her um, but uh, you know I had to persuade him you know that Google force is barking mad at this point, you know, generally, and disillusioned and fed up. this is you know when he 's been at it for years, so I felt I abandoned the idea of doing it as a big tracking shot and, and just broke it down into various parts and shot myself little cutaways or little beauty shots so that I had complete control over the editing of the thing and how I, they could try different things. In each of the sections, and I wrote the sections down as in as logical a way as I could. So, this is they would be talking about one thing, and then they move on to the next. And each of the little sections, you know, I sort of plotted its emotional journey. But I felt that if I didn't do that, and I'd had trouble and I'd made mistakes using long tracking shots because they're terrific fun to do. And you think, Oh my god, aren't we clever? And then you look at it, and you look at it, and you look at it, and the weeks go by as you're cutting, and you think, Shit you know, we could have got more out of this. Mm. And and sometimes just covering it, a long tracking shot and doing a master then doing you know, just doing cover on it, that also gets very tricky, you know, again, matching stuff and all this and the pace of the thing. So I was deeply in love with the idea of the tracking shot and found this fantastic location where they could walk all the way around. But it was interesting once I started to think about the script and once we started rehearsing it then I think all of us, the three of us, got a sense of how complicated it was, and that just to do it in one big splurge would would not do it justice, and we'd be back again doing some of it
0: you know, over. Physical movement of the actors as well. I mean, for me, the scene is about
1: her showing him the light yeah, forward, and she seems to be leading him yeah, through the garden. Yes, it's like a dance. and In fact, some of it, they always are dancing, you know, yeah. which I'm not sure I like very much, but it was the only way I could get them in... You know, in the proper positions to be here and there, so one would, you know, the weight of the shot would be on one side. But they were very skillful at that; they worked very well together. And you know, there was, and of course, you could see the weather was terrible. It kept blowing; it was raining, and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, they had that to deal with. Do you find,
0: to what extent, would you encourage actors to to use their own space? You obviously have your own very strong ideas about. I need you to start here because. Of the,
1: the no, sort of not camera. really. I mean. I, I, but maybe maybe what I've said is not quite... I mean, I much prefer them. If I'm going to rehearse a scene in a, in a studio or something, I don't necessarily tell them very much. I mean, I, I have a plan B, but I'm much more interested in them. So let's read it a few times and now let's put it on its feet, I say. And, I, and let's see what happens, you know, because terrific things happen when they're just operating on their instincts. But if they look at me and say, well, where shall we start? Then I, you know, I can come up with answers. I can, But I quite like keeping the rehearsal very loosey-goosey. I mean, a lot of directors, it would be interesting to ask Alan, but a lot of directors don't like to rehearse and, and because it, it, sometimes it takes the life out of it. And the very first movie I ever <laughs> did I had an incredibly alarming experience. Uh, it was a film called Triple Echo, and it starred Glenda Jackson and Oliver Reed, both of whom are at the height of their power. And I'd got the job because I was working in television. They only had Glenda for six weeks, so they had to get it done in six weeks, so they wanted someone who would do it quickly and efficiently. Anyway, so the problem was is that Glenda was from the theatre, and she loved to rehearse, and she loved to lay it all down and sort it out he couldn't bear the idea Oliver couldn't bear the idea of rehearsing and so the problem I had was that we would rehearse it a bit roughly and then we would start doing it. she had rehearsed it, worked it all out and by take two she'd done that was it, that was all I was ever going to get but he came on he hadn't the first idea what we were doing he didn't know what scene it was he had no idea what the lines were And he kind of made it up as he went along. Now, it sounds, oh, my God, that's ridiculous, but I could see something going on with him. You know, in in some ways, he was much more a genuine film actor than she was. You know, she was a lady of the theatre and had it all plotted out. He fed off the environment. He fed off what the weather was like, what the location was like, and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, it was a nightmare because I was, like, 28 or something. She'd already won her Academy Award and blah, blah, blah and they just couldn't get it together. She saved my ass by sort of doing what he wanted to do otherwise I'd probably still been there shooting it. Well, how, do you, how do you handle that situation when you have different great actors who have different styles of approach to the Well, it's hard, you know, and you have to give and take and you have to learn I mean, you know it's the 50th anniversary of Coronation Street and I've just done a few things where I worked on that and I said that was an incredible experience because you had a range of actors there some of the biggest television stars in the world at that time, some Mm -hmm. very bright young actors and you just got to learn that different actors need different things and somehow you've got to create an environment where you can get something out of both of them I was clueless you know, with Glenda and Oliver, I don't know what to do but um, you know so rehearsal I mean with Oliver you couldn't rehearse with Glenda you could rehearse and anyway I like to rehearse and then if I think the rehearsal isn't going to work and if 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 you know I think it's going to drain the actor of their imagination then I stop it immediately and find other things for them to do but I do like to rehearse and that's how I find we can get kind of into scenes and not necessarily even block them out forever so that people know exactly what they're going to do but at least so we understand what we're doing do you Would you encourage any kind of improvisation or does yeah, a bit uh, it makes me a little nerve, nervous mm-hmm. improvisation it 's not not something i 'm come from because I kind of like write, writers i don 't like writing, but I like writers and I respect that and I, li- I like you know I tend to do films about relationships, so they can tend to be pretty complex but i mean I'm in awe of someone like Mike Lee, who you know creates his "From improvisation and whatever, and I use it, and sometimes it works, but I'm never entirely comfortable with it. It's not a culture I sort of grew up in) <laughs> Although having said that, being a documentarian, you do have to improvise. You know, you have to be light on your feet. You have to know know what's happening in front of you is good and what happening in front of you is terrible. You know, have to know when to shut it down and when to move on. You have to know which track to follow and which is which is you know which is what is bountiful and what is sterile. So, you know, you do have to, as a documentarian, have a lightness on your feet. The other thing I noticed in the
0: scene we just watched as well is. Um there's a lot of animals in the scene. Yeah. <laughs> Sheep, dogs, yeah. peacocks. Yeah. Um, now, I know the character Wilbur, he set up the ISPCC. Yeah, you know, he was very big on animals. Uh, yeah. CA, rather. to just yeah, the seeing, difference between yeah. sort of animals. Um, is that something that comes from the script? Or is that an example of a director thematically putting their vision no, across? No, it's
1: true. I did put it in. And, and it was very annoying for everybody but I thought it was rather an appealing thing about Wilberforce um, that he had animals all over the place and so if you watch the whole film there's an absurd number of animals, parrots, everything, dogs all over the place and it was very very tricky and those sheep in the back of that was a nightmare, had to keep moving them around you know when the sun moved we move the sheep and all this and it really slowed us down. But, I mean, every scene I put animals in it as much as I... He had animals in the house and all sorts of things.
0: Well, if you can work so successfully with gorillas, I don't
1: think well, you can that's a different matter. That's a different story. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that. You don't yeah. work yeah. with, they with direct- gorillas. They work you. work with you, yeah, right.
0: <laughs> just on that, you, d- you said that was an absolute horrific nightmare of a shoot that
1: really... Well, uh, I go- say that, Gorillas. But well, well um, I know
0: every director does, but just particularly, I mean... And I don't even know if you get insurance today, but basically you took a huge Hollywood star into yeah. the mountains yeah. with wild animals yeah. um, without any way to control them or wrangling them at all. No. At all. Um, and you actually see in the film where Silverback stampedes towards right, her, yeah. Sigourney Weaver, yeah. and she just turns around. And right, yeah. You can actually tell it's quite real. Yeah. It's... It's madness. It was was
1: madness. And uh, it's unbelievable when I look back on it. I mean, I had this script, which was the center of which was this relationship between a Hollywood actress and a wild animal, 500-pound wild animal. I mean, it it was madness. Um, And I remember the first time I went up to look at the gorillas, we we couldn't find them. We walked for hours and hours and never found them. We could hear them eating and farting, but you couldn't see them. So that was discouraging. I thought, what is this? And then this then I decided to have a go again, and this time I took Sigourney with me. And we found them very, very quickly. And then we had just this blinding moment of serendipity because they, we came across them, and the, the person with us said, just stop, everybody, keep still. And this gorilla came up to Sigourney and started to touch her. And the bloke said, kneel down very close, very calmly kneel down and she did and this thing petted her and it was clear the animal thought Diane had come back because she was a big woman like Sigourney and Sigourney had jeans on and Diane wore jeans and it was an incredible moment and at that moment I knew we had a chance we could do the movie, up to then I thought this is insanity
0: Uh, Obviously another example of your uh, documentary and still
1: coming through that you insisted on shooting where well, we, I, I, I was told. I mean, they, they'd done um, Greystoke. Hugh, Hugh Hudson had done it with entire animatronics, and it cost a fortune. And they said, that, you're not going to do this, my friend. I mean, they, they, the only reason I got the job was because I had done documentaries. They said, well, you're going to do it. You're going to get your backside out there, and you're going to shoot wildlife material and blend it into the film. and Rick Baker will make you one animatronic gorilla to do bits and pieces. So there was no option. We had to do that. And so we had three units working out there for about eight weeks just shooting gorillas, one with her and the others just on their own. And, you know, we had the moment like you described that happened. And we just took these little moments that had happened for real and then built the scenes around them. So we kind of built the film up from ground zero once we got any interaction between Sigourney and and the gorillas. So that was real. But as I said, the only reason I got the job was they wanted someone who could work with documentary footage.
0: There's a a line expressed at the start of the film when Sigourney Weaver asks his professor why why he's so interested in saving the gorillas. And I think, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, I want to know who I am. I want to know where I came from. And by the end of the film, Sigourney, in a way, becomes a gorilla herself. That sounds crazy, but there's a scene where she's shaking the the, the shack she's in, and it's very animalistic, and and the themes of that are obviously important. What is it that... as a director, you're looking for in a script. is it a particular themes close to your heart, or when you, well, when you, I, yeah, I what mean, is it that attracts you to any particular? Anything.
1: Stories? I mean, at the, any film I do, I need a relationship at the yeah. centre of it. It can be two men, two women, whatever. It can be an old man and a young boy. And it doesn't <sighs> have to be sexual, but I, I need something to hang on to, something to, you know. Get a, a grip of, and in this case, it was her and an animal. You know, um, but I have to have that. If that doesn't exist for me, I have to either have to, if I want to do it. I like the story, but there's no centre to it. Then I have to have that done, and some, usually that doesn't work because then it's imposed and. Doesn't work. The films that I've done that haven't worked at all well have been those when it's sort of been imposed on it. But if I don't have some kind of, for me, recognizable emotional center to a film, I'm totally lost. I don't know really what to hang there. I, I can't figure out the geography of a film. So that's what I always look for.
0: It seems the more successful films you've had have been ones where the character takes a journey, a long journey. Yeah. The longest yeah. one, obviously, being um, the Seven Up series. Yeah, such
1: and some of the, the ones that maybe were less successful were more um, in the moment yeah I think so and also women I've done a lot of films with yeah. women and one of the I think one of the reasons for that was one of my regrets about the Up films you know that we didn't have enough women in it because the whole notion of the film when we set about it is let's look at England in the year 2000 who's going to be the politicians who are going to be the shop steward who's going to be the working stiff and women really didn't figure into that it's unbelievable to think that I don't know how many years, 12, 13 years later, a woman was running the country. But at the time, and and I felt I'd missed one of the great stories of my lifetime, which is the changing role of women in society. And so I suppose a lot of my fictional work has been to make up for for that. You know, women who have fought the battle about family and careers, or women who have dedicated their lives to careers like Diane did. Or now a woman with no voice. or Loretta Lynn, the country singer. I mean, so I've done a lot of films which have centered around the drama of women's because I didn't grow up in civil rights, you know. I didn't grow up in a country that was divided by civil war. Um, and so it's, for me that was the really most dramatic thing politically and socially that I've lived through
0: I'd like to move on to the next clip also from uh, Amazing Grace um, this is a, a scene in Parliament where Wilbur is trying to um,
1: repeal the act um, the anti-slave trade act the anti-slave yeah. trade act it wasn't repealing slavery but the trading of yeah, slaves the right. um, I think we'll have a look at it now yeah, he's just the background to this. He'd been trying year after year yeah. to get this bill through and they'd think they'd get near it and this is dramatized, uh, the, an attempt that failed when he was sabotaged by a member of his own party.
0: The um, For those who haven't seen the film, this is the fourth visit uh, in the film department. And the thing that struck me about this scene compared to the others is that the first three visits are filmed mostly in wide shots or mid shots, and they're mm-hmm. all fairly clean. Whereas at this moment, we're into a lot more close-ups and a lot more dirty shots, there's movement in the foreground as such, uh, which creates a lot more tension, I think, in the scene. Is that something that, um, obviously, we've planned in advance? Mm-hmm. So at one stage when you're breaking into the script, do you see this, or do you make these kind of notes? Well, I mean,
1: you know, that whole arc of that story, yeah. and, and so, I mean, generally, and again, just so I had enough control over that arc, I mean, I truly shot these scenes like a football match. You know, I had about nine cameras in there. I would do shooting with three cameras the whole time, just doing a ton of setups, um, just covering it to death. I mean, I don't like doing that. Your I hate doing love that. You. Well, they did love me because, you know, we had to. You know, you're correct. Your, your your assessment of that scene is correct, but I mean, that wasn't necessarily on the page. You know, yeah. I was c- confronted with these big scenes. We had 120 crowd. We built the set in a church at Chatham, so it was a real building, but we built the set. And I loved all the research about how people used to walk around all the time while they were talking. You know, people would bring messages and things like that. But I just shot tons and tons of material. Which I hated to doing because I hate things dragging on and on and on. But um, I just needed every possible option so I could make all these scenes different. And so the the journey, the emotional journey of his history with Parliament, in a sense, you know, I could go any which way I wanted to. If I wanted to back away from it, I could back away from it. If I wanted a thousand reaction shots for every word spoken, you know, etc. etc. So again, you know, it's you know the rhythm of the film is very important and i would surround that film with scenes which had were very lightly covered if covered at all so you didn't fatigue an audience by constant cutting but i knew the the whole you know the whole importance of the scenes and i had to have enough money i had to use my resources so i could have a lot of crowd days i had to have a ton of raw material, a footage, a film to shoot. had to have three full units on the whole time, and I had to have a lot of time. I'm pretty quick. I mean, I shot the whole movie in about 45 days, but I took 10 of those days on that set doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it depends what you need, but the more I do the film, films, um, I, I speak currently of things, you know, the more you've just got to swallow it and get what you need. I mean, if you want a scene that's delicate and and without a lot of movement in, you've just got to make sure you've got places to go. If you need a scene where there's a hell of a lot going on and all your characters in there, you've just got to get everything. And it's incredibly tiring and incredibly dispiriting for everybody. Again and again and again and all that. But you just have to do it. And if you shortchange it, and I shortchange it, you know, on this last film I just finished, and I had to go back and redo it because. So I don't know what I'm telling you, but I mean, you you just have to be. You just have to know what the beast is that you're dealing with in any particular scene, and if you've got a very, difficult emotional arc to follow, that you are better. Give yourself cover yourself. Give yourself a lot of options. Yeah.
0: Um, having made one or two documentaries myself, I find
1: that the making of the film is in the edit. Uh, Yes, yes. Well, I mean, that's. it is. I mean, I've always contested you write the film when you're editing it. You go out in the documentary and you harvest material. And the skill of doing it is is knowing what's working and what isn't going to work, when to move on and when to carry on, as it were. And then you write it. I mean, you actually write it in the cutting room. Um, You know, you can't really turn a film into a good film where the shooting was bad or the performances had no life or the thing never came to life and all this. But again, you do rewrite the film. You do the last draft of the film in the cutting room. So in both, whatever you're doing, you are writing the film, either from scratch with a documentary or refining it doing the last draft of the film when you're dealing with a piece of fiction. In that clip we've just seen, we saw some extraordinary
0: actors, yeah. including our own Kieran Hines, what what informs your choices when casting? Obviously, there's an element of the bigger the film, there's an element of attaching star names yes, to the so box
1: office. That's very tedious, you know, yeah. and annoying. I mean, my first American film was Coal Miner's Daughter, and Sissy Spacek was already aboard it. She was in place, so she had to approve me and, right. and all that. That doesn't hasn't happened much for so no reason why it shouldn't. But on the other hand, then you have to find people who the who the money people want. and So you have to go there even if you think this person is not right for it. And so again you have to make these value relative judgments. You know, would I take that actor um, because he'll bring some money to it. I know he's not going to be very good. Is it going to matter? Well, of course it's going to matter. Does it matter that much? Or do I need someone really solid here? You know, you have to make all these decisions. The more expensive the film is, the more those decisions have to be but with this thing I mean you know it was a good story and you know there was a very good script and people just wanted to be in it I got Albert Finney who I'd been wanting for years to work with who just said he'd do it and people you saw there Michael Gambon, Toby Jones Benedict Cumberbatch lots of them all all. but the casting process is scary and the most the the best piece of casting for me and that was that. there's a a rather token black character in it who's in it a bit but who's incredibly poor yeah, and he had to have a real substance a real weight although he only had a few scenes you had to feel a real presence there, he didn't have much to say and I couldn't cast it, I saw every black actor in London I could find and even got something from America and I couldn't find what I needed and then someone said to me he said, do you know you su and I said well, yeah, sort of. I mean, he's a singer. And he said, well, the company that's producing the film has a record company and he he has a deal with the record company. So they said, well, what about him? I said, well, does he ever act? And he said, no. Oh, so I said, well, that's all right. Well, I'd love to meet him and talk to him about it. And uh, I'd seen some of his concert stuff and all that. And he's clearly, he comes from Senegal and he was a very important, is a very important man there. I mean, he's not in politics, but he's a politician there anyway. So I said, Well, does he speak English? And he said, Yes. So we met him, I'll never forget it, it was a casting director of me. And he came in and he said, Hi, hello. And we had a little chat and I said, Would you mind looking at this scene? And he he couldn't do it. He couldn't he could do chit chat, but he couldn't do a line. And I sat there and I thought, oh my God. What am I going to do? He can't speak English. And I, we, I sat there and I, I was sweating because this, I couldn't find anybody. And this guy looked great. He was great. He sat in the room and he had a huge presence in the room. So I said to him, well, Look, you go off because you've just flown in from Paris, go off to the hotel and I'll, we'll meet you in an hour and a half in a restaurant. So I sat and I looked at Nina Gold, who cast, and said, What, what are we going to do? So I don't know. I said, Well, Let's just do it. Let's hire the best dialogue coach, and let's just do it. If you can't say a line, just take the lines away. But just to have him in the room, and so we did. And he was great. He had to. I re-recorded him about 20 times. He went, came back and back and back. And, but it was worth it. It was a huge gamble. But you know, he just had something about him that you can't cast. I mean, Alan's done lots of. Films with kids, you know, and he's great at that. It's the same thing when you have a kid in; yeah. they just have something that you can't define and you can't tell them how to do it. They just do it. And you know, in his case, it was the same. He just had that, and he he got very pissed off with it because uh, you know we keep doing it again and again and again. Oh but I mean, I think he saw. I don't think he's ever acted again. So I kind of right. finished him off.
0: <laughs> I mean, is it um, when you when you're working with? Actors like Finney and Toby Jones, and, yeah. and them. Um, can you ask them to read?
1: No, no. So you would. You have lunch? no. I mean, you no, have mentioned. Yes. Well, you talk to them. I mean, I, I, like with. Uh, I did ask Yuen to read, but I think it's. Do they have what you're looking for? Do, do they have a soulfulness with you? With Ewan? he just had a soulfulness about him. You know, he wasn't he wasn't hard-edged. There was a warmth and a vulnerability about him that that I really liked, you know. And to me, that's the important thing. I mean, because some people are good readers and some people are terrible readers. And sometimes you cast someone because they're a quick read and they've got nothing else to give you. So it is how do you get on. And I don't necessarily want them to be my best friend. But you just want to know that you can talk to them. You know, that you could be frank with them when you have built the trust. And they... Could listen to you and, and, and they would pay attention to, to you a bit you just want you don't want to be sat there with someone who only wants to talk about themselves yeah and you want to talk to them a bit about the material but you just want to know could I have a relationship with this person you know that, that to me is as, as crucial as anything you know are we going we're going on a journey or can we go on that journey together
0: and have you been in a situation where you're working with an actor and there seems to be this breakdown in communication. Yeah. They're not getting yeah. what you want from the yeah. character. And
1: how do you resolve that? No, no you, you have to have an exit strategy. I mean, I've always felt that actors live in fear. It's a frightening job to have yourself up there. And he was terrified. So the first movie he had, had a big role in. He was drinking a lot because he was in such pain with it. I couldn't be that much help to him because we didn't have much shared culture, but these other guys, Denny and Marvin, just looked after him and got him through it, you know, and so you always looked when you when you come up against something that's difficult and you're not sure how to get through it. You know, it can help can come from strange places. It's almost the role of director as parent in, in yeah. some sense. Well you are all sorts of things, psychologists or yeah. all, all that. But I mean I I just I have a you know a huge respect for actors because I think what they do is so uh, they 're out there you know i 'm not out there yeah. I mean my name 's on it, but i 'm not out there they are out there, and I just think a lot of them behave badly, and a lot of them behave very badly is because they 're frightened to death and if If you can make that leap in your mind and, and they 're annoying the shit out of the crew, everybody hates them and if, as you can think you know i I've got to reach out to this person I, I know what the, what the issue is and you've got to reach out to it and you've got to give them a safe place yeah.
0: um, we're coming towards the end so I want to bring us to present day we've talked about gorillas let's talk very quickly about lions you're currently uh, finishing uh, the Narnia yes, Narnia yes. film and the third one in the
1: series is yes, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Voyage yeah. of the Dawn Treader. It's big budget. Very big budget and incredibly difficult film. I mean, it's a, a difficult film at the best of times, i.e., it's, it has a lot of magic in it, it has a lot of surreal things in it, but it's also a, a story of three young people who are real young people going on a voyage through these different worlds. And to try and get the tone, anything like vaguely consistent is horrifically difficult when you, my leading man was a two foot mouse, so that's the kind of territory I'm in um, I don't know whether I pulled it off but it was a very very difficult film to to get the amount of right, of reality into it, and the amount, of right, amount right amount of fantasy into it I and mean, whatever, and then politically it was an incredibly difficult film I mean we started out I was employed three years ago to do it and they had just made a very big hit with Lion, Witch and the Wardrobes they all thought they were geniuses and they were starting the second one And then I was going to do the third, but they thought they were so clever that they were going to do the third one back to back. And then immediately I'd been hired. They started getting in trouble with the second one. It started going wildly over budget and over schedule. So they then postponed me immediately for six months and then sent me on these farcical journeys to do different versions of the film. The first one was a European location (coughs) version of it and we came back with a budget of about $300 and they had a cardiac arrest. Then they sent me to Australia and New Zealand to do a similar sort of thing, and then I came back with a budget of $230 million, and they had another cardiac arrest. Then Prince Caspian opened and sort of tanked, did relatively poorly, and then they completely freaked out and said, we can't do a location, you've got to do it all in the studio. So, okay, so do, do figure out how to redo the whole thing and do most of it in a studio. So, off we went to do that, and then we found this great studio in Mexico, North Mexico, in Tijuana, where they built for Cameron's Titanic, and Weir had shot Master and Commander. And we went there, and it was fantastic. Huge tanks, because I was on a boat, big stages, but drug dealers, drug dealers everywhere, drug cartels, battles, weekends with beheaded people in the high street and all this kind of stuff, military encampments outside the studio, we would have to be in a military compound for eight months doing the movie, the kids would have to have bodyguards and all this, and Disney who were producing the film said we can't do this, we can't do a kids film in in a war zone, so out we go so again failed again so that's the third iteration of the film that's failed and by this time disney are fed up getting fed up and they pull out and then this sort of miracle happened that the it was, it was the christmas of 2008 and all the all the currencies all, all the economies in the world are collapsing and the only thing that didn't collapse and i never really understood why was the american currency the dollar so I'd, lo- I'd done sh- locations counting all over the world. So suddenly the Australian dollar went from 93 cents to the US pound dollar to 62. The English pound went from 210 to 140, and suddenly this ridiculous budget became a doable yeah. thing. So Fox moved in, and we went off and made the film. But it was a ridiculous journey. How difficult was it coming in, in a series of sense,
0: you know, for, for maybe TV directors, you know, many of us here... Uh, Got to have done sequels and features, but it were yeah. coming TV to to come into an almost style that had already been established.
1: Well, it was it was more difficult with Bond. I did Bond number 19, so you know and there was a certain language about yeah. it, and and they God knows you couldn't argue with them. I mean, to, it's an incredible franchise to have done to be sure. doing the 19th. So you'd have script meetings and you'd say to the producers, the brockers, you'd say, "Well, Bond wouldn't do that," and they said. Yes, he would. And you'd say, well, why? Because he's Bond. And you go, oh, okay. And so there was a lot of that. It w- they were very, very nice people. and But there was nonetheless a certain language. <laughs> I mean, you had to deliver certain things. You had to deliver young women, scantily dressed young women. You had to deliver one-liners. And you had to deliver you know, certain villains and all this. And you had to do it. I mean, that's what the expectation was. With this one, it wasn't... it wasn't nearly the same because the books are completely different Mm -hmm. I mean I for example never go to Narnia at all I'm on a boat going on a journey between different islands so there wasn't by any means the same baggage to, to take that I'd had on the Bond, but Nonetheless, you know, you do have to pay attention and you do have to know that the audience has got an expectation, which is extremely exciting because there's a big audience out there, but you can't put them into whiplash. You can't start changing tones and characters and things like that. I did do it a little bit, but not very much. So, you know, it's, I don't know, I started out in soap opera, so you don't get more right. rules than that. And so I suppose I found that I could get used to that in a certain Comfort level, but um, it's not something I'd like to do a lot of. Is to come in and have to sure. fill in, join the dots, as it were.
0: We've talked we've talked about the journey in your own career as well as the the characters in your films. And as you know, today is the 10th anniversary of the Directors Guild, and we have our own. We've had our own journey of a sort. And I think 10 years ago, one of the questions faced a lot of Irish directors was, how do you make that leap from short film to feature film? Yeah. And ten years later, I think we must have made at least 100 features. And I think the question now today is, like, how do we build on that career? How do we take that next step, whether it's into Hollywood or or scaling up bigger films? And and if you have any advice for for directors... Well, I mean, you
1: you know, there is no advice. I mean, except you have to be lucky, which is great to hear, isn't it? I mean, for example, I I just read that guy who did the the, the, um, documentary about the American... The footballer in Vietnam who got killed by a friendly fire, Wellman. Right. Do you know that story? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, he and the and the Bush government covered up and said he died a hero's death. In fact, he'd been shot by the guys. And he's made this documentary. He's got a big movie out of it. So who knows? I mean, you know, I was lucky. I went, went to America to do Coal Miner's Daughter because they couldn't get anybody to do it, and um, Americans didn't really want to do it because it's about white trash. But I wanted to do it, and I. would you know, it played into my documentary thing, and that launched me. I was lucky. Um, I don't know. You just keep doing it. You just got to keep working and doing films in Ireland, and then you, you'll get a break. I mean, someone somewhere will see something you've done and say something will click. You know, and it's not a bad idea to go to America a bit, but not for long because it's a depressing place to hang out there, trying to wait for people to return your calls. That so the thing you have to do. And I was told this when I was 22, and Peter Brook, the theatre director, came down to the university where I was at, and we said, What do you do? How do you get a job? And he said, Just do it. If you have to do it on a street corner, do it. And you've got something great going here, and you've just got to keep doing it. And, you know, it's not easy. There are less jobs now than there used to be. But, you know, at least you're working, you're doing stuff, and then at some point something will happen. You know? you'll find a writer that suddenly does a script that people want you'll work with an actor blah 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 or you do something that clicks in some some place, some person you've never even heard of will see it I can't say more than that so Stay focused on the work And Stay focused on the work, work, yeah and know what's
0: going on We've maybe two minutes, three minutes left so I want to open it up just to see if anyone has any specific questions they'd like to ask Michael in relation to either anything you've seen today, I know Paddy will doing a much broader Q and A um, with Sir Alan and Michael later. Does anyone have any questions
1: related to? this, no. yes, John. It up. Do, do the, the people do have any rights, or do they have? Get paid? No, they do get paid. Yeah, I, I, yes, they do. We pay them all the same, um, and they also, if we win any money, they get that. Um, but I do pay. Them. It's not very much because you know the, we don't. It doesn't make much money and. You know, it costs a bit, but they do get paid, and you know, they do have whatever rights they want to demand, really. I mean, if they want to have cut approval, they can have it, because I, I can't stop them. But no, I do. I've started paying them at 28 because I felt, why not? I mean, I don't think it compromised me, and especially later on when the big 500 pound gorilla of reality television entered into our lives, you know, and they they thought, well, are we reality television? Are we grandparents of all this and all these people making all this money and we've done all the heavy lifting and we're not getting anything out of it but so we do that and we're entirely equitable about it and no one gets more than the other and whatever There's no negotiation, is there? well no I mean we did subsequent ones you know we did an American one we did a Russian one a South Africa one and they do have a contract and I did one About marriage in America, and there's a contract. It's not really an enforceable contract because if they say they don't want to do it, what are you going to do? Sue them. But at least all the other ones after mine were put on some kind of legal basis, so there was the idea of a contract. But of course, you know, we kind of grew. You know, we didn't actually sit down and figure it all out. We just got on with it. So. You know, if you're going to do a longitudinal thing any of you, it's a good idea to have some, mm-hmm. to get a lawyer in on it and just get some uncomplicated, simple even if it's unenforceable, it nonetheless adds a slight tone to it, a business like tone to it, you know that it isn't just a bit of fun that if I'm around I'll show up for, but it isn't really meaningful, but it's not a bad thing to do
0: uh, Shane's question I've uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed is, um, uh, you mentioned there Corky Park and uh, From the heart. Yeah. Uh, do you talk a little bit about uh, what made you decide on, on, the, on the lead actors in both of these works were they were you forced to, you know, or did you,
1: did you do the ultimate decision of casting and uh, casting well I I, I, I don't I think you know when you both of those well Hollywood films with with sort of, you know, quite big studios. And they have a huge comfort zone. Neither of them is a very expensive film. So we weren't looking at, you know, the top A-list of, of actors. But no, I mean, I, I met with Val, and Val was coming off coming off Oliver Stone's, uh, you know, um, Van, uh, not Van Morrison, Jim Morris' Dawes film, he was coming off that. So he had a certain weight to him. And again, you know, he satisfied me that he had the right personality for it. Um, but my problem with that was that, you know, I had to use Native Americans. I could not use white actors masquerading as Native Americans. It was absolutely out of the question. Mercifully, thank God. And so I had to use people who never acted before, a woman I cast. Never, didn't, to, to, wouldn't show up again, and all this. We had to persuade her to come back because it was so unpolitically correct to have white actors play Native Americans. So, you know, so I was able to put a couple of other bit of celebrity casting in it. Sam Shepard was in it, yeah. and with um, again with with Gorky Park. I mean, Bill was on. Bill had a strange career because he went from being an off-Broadway actor to being a movie star. He never had any in between. I've forgotten what the actual his Breakout movie was it was a Ken Russell film. I forgot what it was, but and so he was on route to becoming a big movie star. He then sabotaged it totally um, because he didn't want it. But again, he had some heat around him because he was unexpected. He was had a kind of novelty value. And again, you know, by casting people like Lee Marvin in it, you know, you can beef it up. But casting is a very tricky. Um, dollars and cents, you know, pennies and pounds business, you know, you have to... And now it's got to such a stage when they'll tell you how much an actor's worth. They'll say, so-and-so is worth this amount of dollars like Foreign, Huh? It's like a new book bank. Yeah, exactly, like buying a car. Yeah, exactly, yeah. This person is worth ten million dollars domestically, he's worth fifteen, you know, foreign or less, and it's ridiculous. Which is why most Hollywood movies are so dreary, but... Um, You know, it's it is unfortunately, and I've grown up watching the bottom line take over.
0: Just to follow on from what you said, are you aware of how much you are now worth to a movie? Well, I'm not being smart.
1: No, no, I know, I know. (coughs) I mean, it's yeah. um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I've never. I mean, I haven't done badly, but I haven't had that many big commercial hits you know and I've done okay. Um, I mean if Nine is, Bond was a a good one for me although I sort of gave it away my leverage by doing Enigma which I've been trying to do for years and you know that was a rather obscure film. If Nine is successful that'll give me some leverage in the market but as I get older it's a very ageist business and so that doesn't help. But um, it's always been a struggle, really. I mean, I, I think I have a reputation in the business, but I don't have a reputation necessarily for bringing in money. So that's, you know, the, that, that's always quite hard. Is there anything in Latricia then you as hot as your last film? I'm afraid so, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's sickening to me, you know, how people who have just done... Nothing, and then come in and have a big film, you know, which you know what goes on, and they sort of got through it, and it's it happened to be the right film at the right time, and they can get any job they want, and there are other people who have a vast body of work, you know, who can't get arrested. But
0: welcome to the world, you know. Well, I, I don't know about the rest of it, but in the director's Guild of Ireland, you're as hot as they come. Think <laughs> you're on Thank fire. You if, if there was a first here who you tell us we're wrapped, for four minutes over, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time, not pleasure. just for coming in and, sh- and sharing with us today, but also for your support to the Irish Guild well, over the my years. My pleasure. Yeah. Michael Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors and Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.